segment on the weird science dc comics.com podcast with uh my name being reggie and my name being chris and we am uh not having <laughs> young animal comic for reading this week no uh, no so instead we decided to go back on an old standby and pick a year relatively at random and talk about uh you know the the events of that year and how it impacted comics and i picked somewhat arbitrarily uh, the year 1962, hmm. and quite a year it was. It was, even outside of comics. That's right, yeah. <laughs> I'd say maybe a few things outside of comics kind of took a little precedence in the news, but... Uh, well, this, but this is the unimportant stuff. Yeah. We'll go through that first. Uh, I'll, I'll let you handle the really unimportant stuff towards the end of the year, but uh, early on, uh, February 3rd, the United States embargo against Cuba is announced. Uh, in on March 21st, Taco Bell, the fast food restaurant chain, is founded by Glenn Taco. Of Glenn, <laughs> I mean, Glenn Bell in Downey, California. I didn't realize that it was, you know, a, a name. somebody's last yeah. name. I just thought it was, you know, whatever, the Bell. Anyway. Uh, yeah, just a silly, uh, silly statement or something. Uh, then we got uh, August 5th. We have Marilyn Monroe found dead from an overdose of sleeping pills and chloral hydrate at her home in Brentwood, Los Angeles. And then on October 22nd of 1962, the second worst thing to happen at John F. Kennedy uh, occurs. The Cuban Missile Crisis begins, and it ends six days later on October 28th. That was a fairly short crisis, but an important crisis that really did hold Mm -hmm. the world and uh, America and Europe especially in its thrall. This is when Soviet Union leader Nikita Khrushchev announced that he had ordered the removal of uh, Soviet missile bases in Cuba. He, he there was a he was sending nukes over and like they were tracking a boat all the way across the Atlantic. I would I would assume right. Uh, on their way to Cuba, but then on October 28th, he withdrew them in a secret deal between Kennedy and Khrushchev. Though Kennedy agreed to the withdrawal of U.S. missiles from Turkey, but they didn't have to make that public, so it looked to everyone like Khrushchev backed down to Kennedy. When in fact, they made a they compromised. They compromised. You know, believe can you believe that? But uh, <laughs> <laughs> never. Yeah, I mean, this this was intense. You know, like the, these missiles were coming closer and closer to Cuba every day, and it was on the mm-hmm. news, and people were. Wondering will nuclear war break out? Because let me tell you, if they launch them from Cuba, they're gonna. They're it's gonna a done deal. America. It's 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 yeah. gonna hit America. Yeah. That's when they were trying to sell uh, those uh, bunkers for your backyards and stuff. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And people, yeah. people bought them. Oh yeah. Um, we had some uh, famous births. Uh, February sixth, Axel Rose. Who I, I always look at as the uh, as the Rob Liefeld of, ro- of rock and roll. I think that that's uh, a very astute statement. <laughs> very, I have to say, I agree with that. And uh, March 12th, uh, my favorite right fielder of all time, Daryl Strawberry. Yeah, I had to put him uh, in there. 
Absolutely. Uh, March 21st, Rosie O'Donnell, and October 3rd, Tommy Lee. That's right. So rockers at you know the beginning and towards the end of the year. So it was a year. Maybe he's the uh, he's the Mark Silvestri of. Uh, <laughs> he's the Yang to Rob Zing. <laughs> oh boy, yeah. Uh, the number one Billboard hit that year was "Stranger on the Shore" by Acker Bilk. Highest never grossing. Heard. Never heard of that either. I gotta say, <laughs> highest grossing film that year was "Mutiny on the Bounty." Hmm. Now to make us all feel really terrible, let's look at some prices from 1962. Average income, well, this will make us feel better. It's only $5,556 is the average no. income. Uh, average cost of a new house, 12500 mm-hmm. Um Tuition to Harvard University, 1520 bucks. That was I was really surprised. That that's less than a single three credit course at a state university today. I mean, that's it's it's sad. And when you think about it, it's it's a fifth of the average income of of, 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 an, of anyone year. in America. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you know, so it's so you know of a middle class income. Let me tell you, it's not a fifth of the middle class income now. Income oh, anymore, sure. boy. It's a six figure <laughs> uh, endeavor, no problem. Yep. Uh, average cost of a new car was three thousand one hundred twenty dollars. Gas per gallon was twenty eight cents. Milk per gallon was a dollar four, which is pretty high. That's pretty high. And uh, of course, the cost of a comic book was twelve round cents. Mm-hmm. Those are the days. Those were the days. They were. They were. Uh, in comics, we have the uh, first two Wonder Warthog stories. Uh, they appeared in Back Bacchanal, <laughs> a, a short-lived college humor magazine produced by former staffers of a uh, University of Texas's humor magazine, the Texas Ranger, and that came out in the spring. Uh, we got this is a uh, Gilbert Shelton is uh, the guy behind this. He was born May 31st, 1940 in Houston. Uh, he'd become the editor of the Texas Ranger, which made it uh, pretty easy to get yeah, his comics. I think that you know, greased the wheels right there. A little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah save me page six, please. Um, now, Wonder Warthog is a parody of Superman, but not in the Mad Magazine tradition. Yeah. Uh, he was much more gritty and urbane with more social commentary and uh, kind of gross and gory scenes. I, he wasn't very pleasant to look at. Uh, it, it really has a very, like, heavily inked, you know yeah. what I mean, pulpy sense to it, you know, that uh, I think is the proper look for it, but it's not, it's, yeah, sure, not sure. pleasant is not what I would call it. No, not in the, not in the slightest. And it uh, doesn't help that he's also an you know, anthropomorphic warthog. So uh, he ain't a he ain't a dude. <laughs> no. uh, now this would be one of the early indicators of the underground comic scene that would explode out of uh, the West Coast in San Francisco just six years later. Yeah, it's, I, I just thought this was an interesting kind of like opening salvo, and there were other things, and we went into all this in our you know five part underground comics series. Mm-hmm. But this was really you know. Now we're starting to see, you know, print stuff in print, stuff coming out. This is like up. the seminal, yeah. Yeah, this, I mean, this really, in a sense, really might be the, the very beginning, because then the East Village Other would do their comics like two, three years later. And then, of mm-hmm. course, you know, Robert Crumb came out in 68. Uh, another thing that was, you know, near and dear to my heart, also kind of related to the underground comic scene, was uh, Harvey Kurtzman's Help. Volume 2, number 1, from Warren Publishing, comes out in February. And really, I just did this to talk a little bit about Harvey Kurtzman and his interesting life. Uh, (laughs) He was born October 3rd, 1924, in Brooklyn, New York. Started working for EC Comics in 1950, primarily writing and drawing uh, parts of Two-Fisted Tales. That was their war, one of their war comics, eventually was their only one. Uh, In 1954, EC publisher Bill Gaines suggested Kurtzman start a humor magazine to supplement his income. Because he was such a perfectionist, 
he only did the one comic per month at a, after a time, you know, writing yeah. and doing the layouts and usually drawing one of the stories, and he'd have other guys draw the other stories, whereas his counterpart, Al Feldstein, wrote everything else. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, literally, like, you know what I mean? he wrote every other comic, every every other bit of it. He, he was writing, like, five comics, and Kurtzman's mm-hmm. doing one, so uh, it eventually took off, remember, after uh, issue number four. And it partly precipitated the uh, Comics Code Authority, but that's a whole other set of episodes that we have. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, that was all part of it. By 1956, Harvey left EC to work on a magazine called Trump for Hugh Hefner of Playboy, and that lasted for two issues. But Hefner set him up with an office, and Harvey put out a magazine called Humbug with a collection of creators that had all thrown into a uh, pot, uh, pooled their money together. And that lasted 11 issues. Hmm. Now, uh, Help would be the only successful magazine published by Warren. Uh, it, uh, it They made 26 issues over five years. Uh, curiously, Volume 1 was 12 issues between 1960 and 1961. Volume 2 was the remaining 14 issues over three years. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, <laughs> Kurtzman wasn't, uh, you know, being such a perfectionist, it's uh, sometimes hard to meet those deadlines. Yeah, that, that, that part he wasn't perfect about, I think. It was yes. the other stuff. <laughs> He's a borderline profession, yeah. perfectionist. Uh, now, Help is uh, important not just for its co- comedic influence, but for its features and staff. Uh, it featured art by Robert Crumb, Jay Lynch, Gilbert Shelton, Will Eisner, and dozens more. Uh, and, of course, you know, Kurtzman's cohorts like Bill Elder, Jack Davis, John Severin, and Al Jaffe from uh, his previous ventures. Yeah, well, Mad Magazine and, you know, Humbug guys, all the, the same. Full pens, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the staff also included Terry Gilliam and Gloria Steinem. Uh, they would include Fumetti, which is the uh, is this is the photo. This the is photo the photo comics. one. These aren't the Italian not the Italian comics, kind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, these are uh, photo comics featuring uh, Woody Allen, John Cleese, Milt Kamen, 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 one of them. Uh, I don't know. And others. <laughs> and uh, if you're interested, you could read a bunch of old issues at HelpMag.com. Yeah, it was. Uh, you know, the interface isn't great, but it's interesting to see, especially. In comparison to stuff like Mad Magazine and to see that, you know, sure. kind of created this and even went beyond that while Mad was still using his old layouts from 56. But anyway, you could check that out if you like. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, that year in February, Aquaman number one debuted. That's right. The mm-hmm. very first issue of Aquaman is in 1962, a lot later than I expected. Sure. Especially since he, the character, debuted in More Fun Comics number 73, November 1941 created by Mort Weisinger and Paul Norris, so right at the very beginning of comics. And he, he hung around in backups and adventure comics throughout the 1950s, largely due to the will of Mort Weisinger. Remember he did this for Green Arrow, too? Yep. But basically, he created a character. He was like, yeah, I think I'm, we're going to keep producing this character, whether people like it or not. <laughs> uh, he, he wouldn't be revealed as Arthur Curry until Adventure Comics number 260 in May 1959, and that's when he got his origin. Before mm-hmm. that, he was just like Namor, but there was less known about him. Yep. As far as I can understand, he was just like, oh, you know, he lived in the water. He, that's it. You know, he had water powers. And where did he go at night? Eh, the water. I don't know. The water. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this comic in 62 would be his first solo outing, uh, written by Jack Miller, drawn by Nick Carty. Uh, and the, the cover is pretty, I mean, it really is Really nice Nick Cardi work if you're a fan. Oh yeah. I, what's what's weird is this was never a popular comic as far as like you know the pantheon of them. 
but it's really some of Nick Cardi's best work. I, I think he sure. had a real affinity for this character. Uh, worth looking at for that reason. I really only mention this, though, here. Because it illustrates to me and, you know, uh, to, to both of us how out of touch DC was with this budding readership that w- that was coming in the 60s. The baby boomers that were starting to uh, become teenagers and even moving on to college that were reading uh, other comics. And this Aquaman would be the only new DC title this year. Meanwhile, across the street... There was something going on. We have Amazing Fantasy number 15 came out in August, which is the first appearance of Spider-Man. Wow. Is uh, done by Stanley and Steve Ditko. I mean, that's that like almost changes the language. Absolutely, of, uh, yeah. I, of comics here. Fantastic Four number one would have been the opening salvo, and that was November. In 61. In 61, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. So that came out. So the times they were a changing and rapidly, as as we'll see right here. Certainly, because Marvel wouldn't stop with uh, Spider-Man. Also debuting, we had the Skrulls. They showed up in Fantastic Four number two. Uh, The Hulk, Thunderbolt Ross, Betty Ross, and Rick Jones showed up in Incredible Hulk number one. Doctor Doom in Fantastic Four number five. Hank Pym, you know, Ant-Man. Tales of Astonish number 12 and Tales to Astonish number 35. Uh, the whole Thor pantheon here with Thor, Loki, Odin, and Asgard itself. Uh, Journey into Mystery number 83 and Journey into Mystery number 85. Uh, the Wizard in Strange Tales number 102 and Egghead in Tales to Astonish number 38. Had to put Egghead in there, you know. They do, Why they, not? They do pull them out now and again. But all these <laughs> all these characters that now are like, really are the, the, the some of the, you know, obviously the primary building blocks of the Marvel mm-hmm. Universe all coming out in the same year. And, you know, of course, part of that is because they were creating a new a universe, universe. Yeah. but you know they they were under some real constraints. Uh, Stanley and then Jack Kirby and you know the whole uh, all the whole creative staff. There, there was a hail mary arrangement with independent news distribution in the late 1950s that restricted the number of comics Marvel could publish per month. So they were only doing like 18, I think, per month was their limit or something like that. I think it was even less than that. Was it? It might have been less than that because it seems like it would be less, and that's why they. I think it was of, like eight. A lot of these were every other month, you know. Or they were and, shared. Or they, they shared, shared comics. Yeah. A lot of them, like Tales to Astonish and Journey into Mystery, eventually became mm-hmm. like a shared Thor Doctor Strange thing. Uh, And the reason independent news restricted them was because they already distributed a bunch of comics by a certain publisher known as DC Comics. So they were like, well, we don't really feel like taking on a full run, another full uh, pantheon of comics. Thank you. Mm -hmm. But even with this restriction, they debuted so much exciting new material presented in this contemporary way throughout the 1960s. You know, this year is just one year it, it snowballs you know the following year you got you know we were talking about it before avengers mm-hmm. the, uh, X-Men. the x-men you got iron mm-hmm. man you know that you do have doctor strange you got i mean it yep. just it just keeps going and going and going and uh dc is like you know still putting out fox and crow and you know they what I mean? like <laughs> they were just not on the ball but they, you know, the superman nope. is still like you know uh eating red kryptonite and uh turning into a gorilla or whatever yep um, so, you know, they had this restriction, and then in 1968, Martin Goodman sold Marvel to Cadence Industries. Essentially, Marvel went from being a company hemorrhaging money to a profitable company. Is this the uh, parking structure people? No, I think you're thinking of, um, uh, the Kinney, right? The, the Kinney, Kinney meters, that's right? It, that was yeah. DC was the, sold to them, and they sold to the, Warner The Brothers. crooked uh, parking people. Yeah, that was all, I mean, <laughs> God, these, these 
this business stories behind comics are almost like more lascivious than anything yep. in there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyway, that whole story about Marvel is really a full story for another day. But I mean, after '68, that is when Marvel overtook DC in sales, and frankly, rarely ever stopped. I was gonna you know? say they never look back. Really, never look back. You know, there until been, this year, maybe a little bit. There, but there it, have been it's periodic gonna, it'll shifts. Ebb and flow. Uh, exactly, there's an ebb and flow, but I'll tell you, the flow is largely on Marvel's side since 1968. 100%. So yeah. uh, it's uh, it's. I really find this this whole period, this you know, beginning of the Silver Age, fascinating and. Uh, just wanted to try to just express that with the you know try try to pick one year that could express that without without you know showing so many different comics because you know like, yeah. like uh there, there were new comics from DC coming out throughout the 60s but often it was like Binky and his buddies like you know and what Jerry I mean like, Lewis Jerry Lewis well I think that was actually <laughs> still a hangover from the 50s oh they, was it yeah they I think were it was. still publishing you know they they basically had the same publishing mentality. Through the that they had through the 50s through the 60s and it didn't really apply anymore. You know, times had changed, people's attitude towards comics had changed, yeah, and gener- new generation of readership that and it, wanted something more. It took it. It took almost an entire elimination of DC staff uh, <laughs> in the late 60s and early 70s. You know, and then Dick Giordano to come in and bring in his new guys to uh, reinvigorate DC and make it into uh, what it was in the Bronze Age, which is. Really something amazing. And, you know, that kind of is a segue into the comic we have coming out Yes. this week that we're going to be talking about uh, next week on the show. We have a couple of comics. It's going to be Bug the Forager, number one, by the All Red team. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not All Red. They are Mike, Laura, and Lee All Red. They're not, you know, Lee is a brother. I don't want to get <laughs> weird about it. Yeah, uh, nothing, nothing weird, yeah. And uh, Shade the Changing Girl, number seven, which I'm, or is it eight? It's uh, uh it no, might be eight. It's eight. Yeah, it it's might be eight. eight. Yeah, I don't know why. Yeah. Really looking forward to that. I did actually peek at a solicit. As I understand it, she's going to swing by Gotham City. Gotham I know, City. I know yep. that you're shocked <laughs> that they would put Batman in a comic book or Gotham City, but they're actually going to do it finally. So that's. Uh, I am interested though to see what they're going to do with that. And then the weekend, yeah, because it'll be oh. it'll be really cool to see her interacting, or actually just being a part of the DC universe. Because up till now, it could have been not, you know, it's, except for the shade bits, which but, are yeah, yeah, which sometimes are its own thing anyway. Yeah, I know that that nineties vertigo because they, you know, they when they made that changeover, there's a little bit of mm-hmm. DCU kind of lingering around, and yeah. kind of a, the stink of DCUs and all those books. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I'm real interested to look at it, and uh, I'm excited to talk about it. And the uh, following week, we have Cave Carson has a cybernetic eye number eight, which, of course, mm-hmm. man, they have been stringing us along with this crazy story, so we definitely want to know what happens there. Absolutely. But I think that's all we got from this week, Chris. Do you have anything else for him? No, I think that'll do it. Well, until next week, folks, want you to keep it young and animalistic. 